Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow. And I know last episode I said that we were done with 1991, but I lied. I've decided that we're going to take a look at a few songs and bands that didn't actually chart on the modern rock charts, but, you know, maybe should have in a, in a more perfect world. So these are going to be some songs that are possibly a little more obscure, but some stuff that I think is worth checking out. Joining me today is my guest, Julia Fernandez. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about yourself? I'm doing great, yeah. Thanks for joining me. Should we talk about you a little bit? Sure. sure. <laughs> I am a proudly obscure musician. I have been in several bands. The Fall Colors was my last active band. Um, I also play music myself under the name Pleasure Holiday. Nice. Is that still an active thing that you're doing? It is. Nobody's been playing music out in the past year and a half, thanks to uh, the global pandemic. So, right. you know, and I've been busy because I do work in medicine. So that was pretty crazy. Working in a COVID unit kind of took all my energy for a while. But um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting out there and um, definitely trying to work on some new stuff. All right, nice. Okay, well, why don't we just jump into it? We're going to be looking at four bands as usual. And the first one we're going to talk about is a band called American Music Club. This band was formed in San Francisco in 1983 and is led by singer Mark Eitzel. And I think the intention with the band name was that it was supposed to sound as generic as possible. They achieved that, I think. <laughs> yeah. I always was kind of... For some reason, I think I held the name against them. I never really got into them at the time, I think, just because uh, because of the name. Sure, sure. And, I, you know, there's a few bands that have done kind of similar things. The Smiths and Electronic come to mind. It took me a long time to find American Music Club, too. And I think somehow the generic name made them, I don't know, like drift off in my mind. <laughs> Easy to forget about or something. I don't know. Not so with the Smiths, though. Somehow I was intrigued with that band name. Yeah, actually, I feel differently about the Smiths. There's there's something about it that's uh, not quite as generic as American Music Club in terms of the name. Yeah. Okay, so this band released a bunch of albums throughout the 80s to little commercial notice, but they kept getting better with time. And in 1991, they released what is generally considered their masterpiece. The album's called Everclear, and Rolling Stone magazine named it as one of their top five albums of 1991, and they also chose Mark Eitzel as their songwriter of the year, or one of their songwriters of the year for 1991. So last episode, you remember, we talked about all of the incredible albums that came out in 1991. So with very, very stiff competition, uh, you know, that's, that's high acclaim right there. For, for this album. Definitely. Have you listened to much American Music Club? Not a whole lot. I'm, I'm pretty sure I was more of a passive listener. 1991 was around the time when I saw 120 Minutes for the first time. And I really got the feeling listening to this that I probably saw it on there or heard it on college radio or something like that around this time. Sure. Yeah. But I, I actively, honestly couldn't really name too many American Music Club songs or anything, but it's, it's right. good stuff. I like it. It's kind of hard to pin down. To me, when I listen to it, it sounds 
kind of dark and I think I've heard it described as Alterna Country Lounge Rock. I guess that sort of fits. I sort of see it in a way kind of like this middle ground between shoegaze and arena rock in the song in particular. Mm -hmm. Sort of like, um, you know, kind of that that whole thing like around the time of like Catherine Wheel and stuff like that where it was going from the whole kind of crazier, more experimental type of shoegaze to something that was a little bit more palatable. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think there were a lot of bands that kind of fell into that around that time. But this is sort of the beginning of of that happening, I think. Sure. So we're going to hear a song called Rise. I've listened to this whole album quite a few times, and Rise to me stands out as what I would say the most radio-friendly of the songs by quite a wide margin. I think the whole album's very good, but this one, it sounds it sounds different. It sounds maybe like it was intended as a single. But let's give it a listen and um, see what we think. Don't tell me how to tell the truth You're like a story on the sails Guns and knives Tell me how to make something beautiful Flash before your That's a very 1990s music video. All it needs... <laughs> That's the same, same response I had, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, all it needs is like a scene where everybody sits on a couch, and then it would be like perfectly 1990s. Yeah, they've got like the carnival sideshow. Yeah, yeah, Or whatever exactly. it is, yeah. What'd you think of the song? I like it, I like it. It's definitely of its time but um it's got a lot going for it i I stand by my thing about it kind of being in that middle ground between shoegaze and arena rock Uh, but i think it kind of works in this case there's actually a lot of songs from that era that shouldn't quite work but do and i would say that this this is probably one of them yeah i think i agree and i think to me it it brings to mind some like yeah i was gonna say the word emo but i don't mean like I'm not. I'm not saying it sounds like uh, Fallout Boy or something, but it, to me, it, it kind of reminds me in some ways of like Sunny Day Real Estate and some bands. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely in the same same vein. Uh, but yes, with with like some arena rock leanings for sure, and they've got a big chorus on the song that doesn't really exist on a lot of the other songs on the album. But I think the whole album feels a little bleak to me, like a lot of anguished emotions. And things like that. So if, if that's the kind of thing you're into, if you're feeling bleak and anguished, I recommend Everclear by American Music Club. Go check it out. Is there anything else I want to say about this band? I was going to say, the first song I ever heard by American Music Club was this song called Johnny Mathis's Feet. I don't know where I stumbled across that, but I found it when I was in college many years ago. And I didn't really know what to make of it back then. And honestly, I still don't know what to make of it. It's like a, I worship Johnny Mathis's songwriting sort of song. Like every song I've written, I can't, they don't hold up against Johnny Mathis. For me, like I could never tell if this was sincere or if it was supposed to be ironic or if it was somewhere in between and Mark Eitzel wasn't even sure himself. I, I guess my point is that I, I, I find his lyrics somewhat enigmatic 
but I think there's people who consider Mark Eitzel to be something of a, a street poet. So if that's your thing too, check it out. Anyway, American Music Club, they disbanded in 1995 and then reunited at some point and broke up again in 2010. And Mark Eitzel has continued as a solo artist and has tons of albums to check out. Let's move on to our next artist. We're going to hear from a band called Mercury Rev. This band was formed in Buffalo, New York in 1989. And they started out as sort of a psychedelic shoegazy type band. In 1991, they released their first album, which is called Yourself is Steam. And we're going to hear a song called Car Wash Hair, which got a UK release in 1991, but for some reason didn't show up in the US until 1993. And uh, just a side note, this song features Dean Wareham from Galaxy 500 and Luna. So if you're an expert on Dean Wareham, you can... Listen out and see if you can catch that. Here we go, Mercury Rev. Cause if I'm not in a band, don't mean I'm square. And if I am, well then I don't care. Wanna ask but I just stare. Can't run my hands through your car wash hair. Wow, that's a long song. That's a long <laughs> yeah, it's kind of long. Song. Maybe my attention span has just gotten shorter, but I I don't know. It seems like in the eighties and nineties, it seems like songs were a little bit longer. Like, I, I feel like the average hit song now is a little bit shorter, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not I'm not basing that on science or anything. Well, this one was fairly long. Was it pushing five minutes, maybe? Yeah, yeah, just about. But I don't know. For some reason, I don't mind it. I, I think I might have some emotional attachment to this one, but I, I do love this song. And it's clearly more indie rock than just about anything that we've heard on this podcast before. I mean, I discovered the song in college kind of randomly during the Napster era, I think. It just somehow ended up downloading it it's interesting going back and listening to music from around this time period because 1991 was sort of the birth of a lot of things this is kind of listening to it it's like you're hearing the birth of slack basically so when you're listening to it it sounds derivative but then you realize oh this was kind of the start of that like a lot of people ripped this off um yes and so yeah like i've heard many many songs that sound like this but they came afterwards. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think it adds to the detriment of the song. In my case, I had not heard this song up to now. And so when I'm listening back to it, it's hard for me to listen to it, kind of how it must have been at the time, how it, it seemed, I'm sure, new, like a totally new sound and totally different. And now so many people have kind of done the same thing. But I, it's not a bad song, but it could stand to be a little bit shorter. <laughs> sure yeah there's a there's a big epic uh like musical freak out going for like two and a half minutes yeah. at the end of the song yeah this is, this is a song that gets stuck in my head quite a bit and my wife hates it there's something about the phrase car wash hair that she finds disgusting so she doesn't ever want me to play this song a few years too early but it kind of makes me think of the rachel on friends mm. that like weird <laughs> shaggy hairstyle that everybody had yeah uh, was that car wash hair? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. The- Go through the car wash in a convertible and come out with the Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> 
I like that. So one thing that I think is also interesting about this, especially in terms of you saying that you've heard a lot of later music that might have been influenced by this, the guitarist from this band, Jonathan Donahue, he went on to join the Flaming Lips for a couple albums. And their bassist, Dave Fridman, he went on to become an important producer, producing albums for Flaming Lips, MGMT, Tame Impala, and a bunch of other bands like that. If you're hearing this sound in other later music, maybe that's also part of the reason why. So this band has always remained fairly obscure in the U.S., but they did have some success in the U.K., which is kind of surprising. They released an album called Deserter Songs in 1998, and I think it had a couple members of the band uh, on the album as guest musicians, yeah. But that album did really well in the U.K. I think it went gold, and I think they might have landed three songs from that album on the U.K. Top 40. So, I don't know. I mean, that's pretty big. they they were well-known uh, in the UK, but in the US, success has largely eluded them. Let's move on, and we're going to talk about a band called Bikini Kill. This band was formed in Olympia, Washington in 1990. I think they're pretty well-known in name, more so than by their music. At least that's kind of the impression that I get. Yeah, I've definitely... Uh... People have looked through my record collection, seen how much Bikini Kill I have, and I said, oh, do you want to hear it? And they said, no. So there's a little <laughs> bit of, uh, I don't want to say prejudice against it, but there's, I think people think they know a lot more about their sound than they actually do, because they made some albums later that were, you know, a pretty big departure, and um, ones that I don't think people really would immediately hear and say, oh, that's Bikini Kill, because they became kind of a little bit more musically complex over time. But um, this is where I was in 1991. This was like maybe just before the Baby Barrettes and Lunchbox era for me. Yeah, I loved Bikini Kill and Bratmobile. That was kind of what I was listening to. I was getting away from listening to U2 and all of a sudden deciding that I was just full on punk rock. Okay. Well, I mean, you, you can probably speak to Bikini Kill better than I can. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about this band a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So Bikini Kill, they were just the founders of Riot Girl. They had a zine. They had a band. They started this whole movement, which is pretty amazing. Toby Vale, who's the drummer, she was born and raised in Olympia. And, um, I don't know where Kathleen Hanna is from, but Kathleen Hanna is the singer. And um, they kind of met up. It was Kathleen Hanna, Toby Vale, and Kathy Wilcox, who was the bass player. And then they found um, Billy Karen, who was the guitar player. In a lot of ways, I think the reason why people, they don't think so much about the musical side is because they were, at the beginning, kind of more of a movement. And... They formed the band based on an idea, and the music kind of came a little bit afterwards. This first record that we're talking about, um, that this song comes from, you can definitely hear that. The music is like really, really bare-boned and um, kind of more based around the lyrics than anything else. So it's definitely not in terms of music, really, the greatest stuff, but it's an important record so I, I i would kind of tell somebody if they were not predisposed to be into bikini kill to maybe not start here 
I I really I enjoy it, but I don't really sit down and listen to it very often. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I I totally agree with all of your assessment there. And you know, the album in question, the one we're going to listen to, is called Revolution Girl Style Now, and it was Bikini Kill's self-released first album, cassette only. And you know, we're listening to it, maybe not as much for the musical quality, but because I think it's culturally important. I do actually like this song, though. I feel like this song is when they started to kind of coalesce, and this is more like some of their later later stuff. That's why when we were talking about which song to choose off of this one, this is why I, I recommended this one. Okay. Well, we're going to listen to a song off of this album called Feels Blind. I don't know. I enjoyed that. I think it was um, more musical. It was more of a song than some of the other stuff on their first album, but still pretty rudimentary in terms of playing and songwriting and everything. But that's kind of secondary, right? Yeah, it was more about the message at the time, I think. And uh, something that people criticized about Riot Girl, especially at the beginning, was that it was all based around slogans and that whole kind of thing. And you can kind of hear that in the music. She had songs would be kind of based around like one thing, kind of drilling it into your head, which is, it doesn't really create the best music, but it's memorable and kind of, let them really make their point. But I gave a bunch of my old Riot Girl CDs to my friend's daughter, and she really liked them. So it's still meaningful to people, I think. But I don't know whether if I just heard this right now, whether I'd be too interested. It's really interesting to me to sort of look at where Riot Girl evolved in our culture over the last 30 years, I guess. You know, at the time, it was fairly shocking to a lot of people. And maybe maybe a lot of people who weren't there don't realize this, but Bikini Kill and a lot of similar bands were, they, they were the targets of a lot of hate. I think it's easy to, to hold them up now and go like, yeah, look at these feminist pioneers and Riot Girl and Girl Power and everything, and, and kind of assume that that was always something good that everyone aspired to and everyone thought was a cool thing. But back then, like, yes, there were huge amounts of hate targeted at them and people would go pay to see them just to taunt them and shout at them. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Some of the things that happened, uh, I mean, they were like physically beaten up at shows like there'd be shows that the cops broke up because there would just be just crazy stuff that happened. And right now, I mean, it seems tame a lot of their music and a lot of what they're saying. But at the time, it really is pretty shocking when you think about it's really not that long ago that um yeah that this was absolutely just you know people were just blown away by how out there it was that there were women saying these things so 1991 really not that long ago or maybe i'm just really really old 
right? <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I also wonder with this with the whole Riot Girl movement. I'm always curious, like, would we have had the Spice Girls without that? That's you know, true. would we have had yeah. Beyonce declaring herself a feminist without that stuff? I liked the Spice Girls. <laughs> uh, that's fine. I, I I don't know why. I mean, I I think I was like far enough away from that kind of teeny bopper phase that I felt like it was okay for me to 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 like them. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it definitely I I agree with you that uh, they kind of did a sanitized version of the whole riot girl thing. I mean the the girl power dress and all of that. It's what happens when capitalism gets its hands on exactly. anything, right? They they take out the songs about sexual abuse and yeah, sort of this generic issue free feminism. I think back to what we had said about how Riot Girl was kind of a little bit too based around just slogans. One of the dangers of that is that it was very easily co-opted. And Vice Girls were a pretty good example of how much it was co-opted and how easily it was co-opted. Yeah. Uh, Okay, great. Well, we've got one more band we're going to hear from. And this is a band called The Wedding Present which I'll be honest, until I got into the wedding present, I frequently got them mixed up with the birthday party. I should say it's kind of intentional. I think the wedding present, when they named their band, wanted specifically to name themselves something with a a birthday party vibe. So it worked. This band was formed in 1985 in Leeds, England, and they're led by David Gedge, who is the only consistent member of the band. And they were initially considered to be part of the C86 scene, and they've been compared to The Fall and Gang of Four. I guess that's fair. To me, they sound kind of like, I don't know, like if Joy Division got hijacked by a drunk friend who had just got dumped by his girlfriend or something. (laughs) Maybe that's too specific. Uh, Something that I've always discovered with the wedding present is whenever somebody describes something as sounding like early wedding present, it never sounds anything like the wedding present ever. So I remember when I first started listening to the wedding present, like feeling like I was missing something like, like, are, are there, do they have like a massively wide range of different types of sounds? But yeah, I mean, it's, I think your whole description with the drunk friend is kind of uh, hitting the nail on the head. Yeah, it's, it's definitely coming from that whole initial scene and, um, you know, kind of building on that. And it's pretty good stuff. I had never been hugely into the wedding present, but I don't turn it off when it comes on. Well, in 1991, the band released their third album. This is called Sea Monsters. And this album received a lot of praise and has since shown up on a lot of best of the 90s lists. And in fact, I can't remember which website it was, but some music website named it as the very best number one album of the entire 90s. We're going to hear the first single from the album. It's called Dalliance. Here it is. I miss you. It's not bad. 
listening to all this stuff from 1991, I'm realizing that it's always about either really being extremely emotional and really feeling everything or just really not feeling anything at all. You kind of got the, we were talking about kind of the slacker side to everything. And then we've got the super emotional breakup song. I think the nineties were really about feelings for some reason. Mm -hmm. Like they were like intensely on one side, the like kind of intensely, uh, you know, emotional anthems, um, which this definitely fits in with, I would say. Oh yeah. This one's pretty intense and it gets even more intense as it goes along. (laughs) I had, I had forgotten about like the big noise freak out in the middle and then it just does not let up until the end of the song. I think part of that probably is due to the producer or engineer or whatever you want to call him, Steve Albini, who, you know, he's well known for producing Surfer Rosa, the Pixies album, and he produced the Breeders album Pod, and he produced... In Utero. Right, Nirvana's In Utero. So I think he's often known for having kind of a raw guitar sound on a lot of the albums he works on. He's also kind of on a bit of a tear because, you know, he's just producing some really, really great albums during this era. Not just the ones that I mentioned, but I think in 1991, he produced an album for The Jesus Lizard and for Super Chunk. And I think in both of those bands' cases, it's like maybe the best album of their careers. So um, he's doing some solid work here in 1991. I have never been sort of as into his production as a lot of other people have. I know he's recorded a lot of albums that I really, really like, um, and I sort of respect his whole approach, but um, I know that there's been a lot of musicians who have said that like the, it was the closest to the sound they actually heard in their head. I know that that's what Kurt Cobain said. I, I guess I'm not totally sure if I'm loving the albums because of his production work or if I'm loving the albums because... They just happen to be some of the best songwriting that those bands have done. And it's a coincidence that they end up working with Steve Albini on those albums. But I guess at some point when you've when you've been involved with so many great albums, like some of that credit must probably be due to you. So I'll give him I'll give him credit. He's providing something. All right. So uh, back to wedding present. They had quite a few charting singles in the UK, although I think only one that ever cracked the top 10. In the US, they never charted anywhere, which is not surprising. Uh, I don't know if I know too much more about them. I, I do know that at some point in their career, they decided to release, like, it was like a single of the month club, basically. I think, like, literally every month for the entire year, they released a single, and then I think they did a cover song for the B side. So if any of you are really really into dalliance i want to hear some more wedding present there's a truckload of singles and cover songs you can get your hands on i think that's about it 1991 just below the charts for you 1991 it's it's sort of more in retrospect when you look back on it it just seemed like the birth of a lot of different things happening um and so sort of in some way i think that the stuff that built on it later, I would say like 93, 94, there was a lot of really cool stuff going on around that time. But it all sort of 
started around this time period. I think there was something about you know, changing decades that all of a sudden people saying, we're not in the 80s anymore, we're our own thing. So I, I kind of see the 1991 more of the start as the start of things than, you know, really when you're getting the middle of all these great music scenes that happened a little bit later in that decade. Yeah. I think for me, I think I think one of the reasons I was interested in doing this bonus episode and hearing some of these songs that are maybe a little more underground, I guess, or a little more indie is because as alternative rock progresses into like the mid 90s and then to the late 90s it gets really commercialized and a lot of these sounds that were alternative and were unusual and strange all the rough edges kind of get sanded off of them and alternative rock becomes something that i think maybe a lot of college kids didn't really want to listen to anymore and so Whereas college rock and alternative rock, I think, were fairly synonymous in the late 80s and early 90s. I think by the time we get to the late 90s and early 2000s, most college kids who are cool music fans are probably listening to something that you would describe more as indie rock and not listening to the alternative rock stations. Does that seem like a fair assessment? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you you came into this point in the 90s where you had that phenomenon of like the poppy alternative one-hit wanderers. It, it was really different than what came right before it and um, sort of that burst of creativity. By the late 90s, you just had a lot of sort of these candy alternative things that um, stuff that sounds really dated and kind of cheesy now. Yeah. So I guess my point was like that the songs from this particular episode, I think, are more feeding into what became indie rock and the new college rock, so to speak. I think that wraps it up for us. This is the end of 1991. We're going to be moving into 1992 soon enough. Julia, is there anything you want to talk about? Is there anything that you want to, to plug all my stuff is up on Bandcamp, and I have a website that's actually pleasure.holiday. There's no actual .com on it. Pretty easy to remember. I didn't know you could do a, a .holiday. Yeah, it's uh, something that's meant for tourism, I believe. So sometimes I get some odd hits on it. <laughs> so your your music is, is like a musical, a musical vacation. Indeed, yeah. The title came from a Japanese magazine spread about a dance company. It was the Pleasure Holiday of Strange Kanoko, and I, uh, I liked the term. It's very, it's it's very much Japanese English. Like it sounds right, but it's maybe a little little overly formal. Sure. Yeah. I was just wrestling for a long time trying to find a name for my solo stuff, and I settled on that one. Yeah, well, I like it. It's a good name. So if people want to hear you, they can go to pleasure.holiday or, like you said, Bandcamp and look for Pleasure Holiday or are the Fall Colors. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Fall Colors, our, our album is up on there as well. That was my band back in Portland. And we made the album and unfortunately broke up just after we recorded it. So we never really got much of an opportunity to do much with that. But it did get released in the UK on, on cassette. Oh, nice. That's where I'd recommend people start if they wanted to check it out. Okay, right on. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun. 
My pleasure. Yeah, I hope you all heard some music that you liked. And uh guess we'll see you in 1992. Have a good one.